What happened to the Armenians in 1915 was indescribable. Literally, no English word yet existed to encompass the imperceivable horrors experienced by the Armenians at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. That is, until Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide in reference to the Armenian genocide. A genocide is a new word combining the Greek word genos, genos meaning race or group, with the root of the Latin sidere meaning to kill. Dr. Raphael Lemkin, who is a professor of law at Yale University and specializing in teaching matters about the United Nations, Dr. Lemkin is the man who created the word genocide. Dr. Lemkin, could you give us a little background on how you came to be interested in this genocide? I became interested in genocide because it happened so many times. It happened to the Armenians, and uh, after the Armenians, Hitler took action. That is an excerpt from a 1944 CBS interview with Raphael Lemkin, one of the fathers of genocide prevention. Lemkin is a lawyer of Jewish-Polish descent, and he initiated the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Unfortunately, genocide did not remain unique to the 20th century. It continues to haunt both humanity's past and present, most perpetrators unpunished, and survivors without proper recognition or reparations. The survivors of the Armenian Genocide, no doubt included. But that doesn't stop us from pursuing justice. The ANCA, the Armenian National Committee of America, actively advances the concerns of the Armenian American community on a broad range of issues, one of which is the proper recognition of the Armenian Genocide, with the belief and hope that justice for the Armenian Genocide will contribute to the prevention of future genocides around the world, the ANCA works endlessly to raise awareness and pass legislation to help foster wider genocide recognition and ultimately prevention. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And you're listening to Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. Today's episode, Impacting Media, Preventing Genocide with Alex Galitsky. A cousin of Armenians talking in the world. We spoke with Alex Galitsky, the communications director of the ANCA Western Region. He and the ANC are currently launching the Impact Media Institute, a genocide awareness slash prevention informational website and resource which records and measures a nation's participation in genocide. Alex, welcome to the show. Welcome to America. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> our newest and best immigrant to our land. Fantastic pre-scripted joke. It's been a, it's been a great time. He's been working it's been rehearsed for seven days straight. <laughs> How can I make this funny? <laughs> no, uh, but really though, you you've only you've been here for less than a year. We're happy you're here. Uh, uh, you've been doing great work for the community. Thank uh, you. Working for the ANC as the comm director, communications director, and. Uh, uh, can you give us a little bit of background of how you ended up here? Uh, you know, you're from Australia, correct? That is correct, yeah. <laughs> it's all from the accent. It's not a very thick accent. You might have to put subtitles on this one or, like, uh, dub it in an American We'll accent. hire a translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> give us a thicker accent. I think that people will like that. That might be painful for <laughs> all of us involved. For sure, for yeah. sure. So, like you said, I've been here for less than a year at this point. I think it's 10 months coming up, the end of this month. So prior to this, I was in Australia. I was working with the Armenian National Committee there for the best part of four years, on and off though, and in between stints working for political offices, working with my university as a research assistant, 
Mm-hmm. I spent some time in Armenia doing birthright for about five or six months. Right where we met. That's where we met. Yeah, yeah that's where it all began. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and we were there. Um, I think you came a little bit after me, right. but I got there right after the uh, Velvet Revolution. Yeah, right after the revolution. Right. And it was still very intense time to be there. Well, uh, back in Australia, were you always involved in the Armenian community? You're half Armenian, correct? That is, yeah, that's also correct, and you can probably tell by the name that you know, yeah. Armenians are all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm half Armenian. I didn't grow up in the community. I didn't really start getting involved until I was about, um, I say, eighteen or nineteen. So it was right after I'd finished high school, uh, high school, and gone into university, and I'd started to reconnect with some friends who family friends mostly, and uh, they had just started up their ASA in, in right. Sydney, and. Uh, my university was also going through the process of setting one up, so I kind of jumped on the bandwagon and yeah. helped uh, put it together. And that's where I started to get involved, mostly at student activism level and then like gradually transitioning into the ANC. What sparked that interest? Was it just kind of on a whim? My, my reintroduction to the community came as a result of being forced to go to a New Year's Eve party <laughs> with a bunch of people who I hadn't seen in like decades uh mm-hmm. family like family friends and then they were like oh we're having a like a, a little get together a barbecue at the bbq i don't know barbecue that's correct you're having a barbie at the park you know mm-hmm. down down yes, the road yes, and uh <laughs> and and i i went along and met some of these people it was the first time i'd really got involved in the community at like an organizational level before that i mean i played piano my whole life and i my piano instructor was an armenian and mm-hmm. i had to like force to go to those recitals and and play in front of like crowds of armenian moms and, and other like terrified students and <laughs> but i get the sense that you've always been a very politically minded person right? definitely and and i'd say i mean for i mean my other half is russian and Growing up, I was always exposed to Russian politics and history right. of that region through my dad, who was very interested. So just through like absorption of osmosis, I, I picked up a lot of the, the history and, and like a fascination for the region. And then when I started to get more into my Armenian identity and, and understand that, uh, it was something that I gravitated towards very naturally. And, and as soon as I found that community, that was like it for me. Like I, I was... At every event, I was doing everything. I was trying to like work my way in and, and get involved. Our community in Australia is small but very robust. Like we're about fifty to sixty thousand, we'd we'd estimate at, which is you know, doesn't sound large compared to the what ten times that in in LA at least. Yeah, yeah. But the the uh, premier of our state or the governor of our state, she's Armenian. She's right, a huge Gladys. asset, Gladys. Uh, our the former treasurer, like the I guess the. I th- I, you could frame that as like the third in line to the leadership in Australia was Armenian. Mm-hmm. He later became the ambassador of Australia to uh, the United States, oh. and he's still here. What was so his name? Joe Hockey, nice uh, half Armenian, Lebanese Armenian. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. his other half might have been Palestinian, but I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so a very interesting community, very interesting environment. Speaking of those community leaders, what does what is kind of the public consciousness in terms of the Armenian genocide back home for you? Is it, you know, widely known? What does that look like? It's it's getting there. And I think this is a really interesting point because it will tie into, I'm sure, a lot of the things we'll be talking about in terms of uh, genocide denial down the line. But Australia has a very strange, close relationship with Turkey. And I think a lot of people don't understand it. It's not like the US where there's a strategic interest in in the airbase in Inchirlik or or, you know, just general geopolitics in the Middle East. Australia was actually involved in a campaign during the First World War to supply weapons to Russia when they were on on the defeat, right? They were they were kind of it was they were in a bad situation. They're allies. Yeah. They were allies, yeah. So Australia was was uh, sent to clear out a path through 
the the Bosphorus Straits through mm-hmm. through Turkey to provide a clear line of passage, but they landed at the wrong spot. Was Gallipoli an accident? Gallipoli was an accident in many ways. They landed at the wrong location. They landed at at, at a shore called Gallipoli. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they call it in Turkish. And the Australians got slaughtered. Day one, like 10,000 dead. They, they came to a beach. There were Turkish, Ottoman Turkish soldiers on a hill above them, and they just mowed them down. And for some reason, that has become etched into the memory of Australia, where this narrative has been created, where and, and it's actually been attributed to Ataturk, although we suspect that mm-hmm. other kind of sympathists came up with the quote. But the line is... The, the Johnnies, being the Australian soldiers, and the Mehmets, being the Turkish soldiers, they fought on the same battlefield. They died on the same battlefield. Our nations, you know, were made on this battlefield. And that's why we have some kind of eternal bond between Australia and Turkey. And that has been a major inhibiting factor for recognition. And and, and it's it's fairly well known. Uh, I feel like that's Ataturk's attempt to appease the West, right? When that was his whole thing. It's yeah. modernizing, westernizing. Yeah, yeah. But the- it was also that beginning stage of genocide denial because it was trying to whitewash the history of the genocide that had taken place by trying to co-opt the narrative of the Australian public. And Mm -hmm. for the Australians, I mean, we had soldiers who were writing and providing eyewitness testimony of Armenians they saw being shipped off into, like, prison camps or into the desert. They they were witnesses. And in Australia at the time, in 1915, and I'm sorry, I did a lot of research on this, but there were about... 8,000, 9,000 articles in mainstream Australian press at the time between 1915 and 1922 about the genocide of the Armenians. Obviously, the word genocide didn't exist then, so they were using words like the destruction of an entire nation. Is that the, something that was like... Synonyms. Yeah, exactly. Syn- whatever they could use at the time to describe what they saw. So the fact that people understood, people donated hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time, very much like what we saw here with the Near East Relief Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the, the Turkish government will say to our politicians, if you ever recognize the genocide, you'll never be allowed to come and visit the Gallipoli Monument and honor the soldiers who died during the First World War. Australia, however, doesn't recognize the genocide. A few of the states do, correct? A couple of states do, and through the work of the ANCA recently, we were able to get a, a debate conducted in the House of Representatives that, that kind of discussed the issue of genocide, and it was unanimous that they consented to that, you know, terminology genocide but it's not a formal recognition so there's a lot that needs to be done do you think over time that that emotional factor being held over their heads will simply fade or yeah and and i think as turkey becomes more obviously a dictatorial state that people have very little regard for and don't want to try and appease uh the more acceptable it has become in australia to speak out against it one thing i wanted to note is that we had i think two or three prime ministers in australia who have prior to becoming prime minister, called for the recognition of the genocide. And then after becoming elected, kind of like an Obama situation. It is, definitely. And and it's always the same reason. It's always, well, we have responsibilities now. We can't say these things. We have to consider our international relationships. It's all all a farce. Yeah, I mean, I don't even believe it anymore when politicians say that. Oh, definitely not. (laughs) I mean, is the Armenian minority in Australia, like a notable community there that people are aware of? The average Australian, they know the Armenian I think definitely after Gladys Berejiklian became right. the premier of the largest state. And just to put it in perspective, I mean, the state uh, is, is called New South Wales. It's where Sydney is. So it's it's the most recognizable Australian kind of city and state. Mm-hmm. Has a population of about 8 million people. Sydney itself is a population of like five or six of that. So we're talking about a city and a state 
twice the population of Armenia being run by an Armenian mm. with a budget, uh, a, a GDP, the state is 15th in the world. So we're talking about a hugely important economy and population being managed by an Armenian. And that has done a lot for our kind of image and branding. Uh, people will be more receptive to us now because especially in her party, they want to earn the favor of, of Gladys, mm. you know? Gladys was in AYF. She mm. was uh, in HOM. She was on the ANC right. board. She was in Scouts. You know, she has a Involved. long history of organizational, in- institutional involvement, and that changes everything. Um, so, Alex, in your Twitter bio, it says genocide prevention. It does. What do those two words, <laughs> what do those words mean to you? I'm glad my Twitter's getting a shout out here. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, genocide prevention, I think, is really too often seen as like this really huge amorphous topic and people don't even want to get involved in in dealing with it or even trying to understand it because genocide is seen as this almost inevitable hugely consequential thing that that can't be stopped and that if a state has set their mind towards committing an act of genocide what can we do to prevent a china from conducting genocide against the uyghurs or Mm -hmm. or you know it, it just seems like something that is insurmountable but I think the way that we need to look at it is that genocide prevention, first and foremost, is about the process of recognition and acknowledgement of historic crimes and building public awareness. Because uh, I think something that we can sometimes be guilty of as a community is look at the prestige which we've been able to achieve nationally, politically through our organizations or... The fact that our genocide was recognized by the House and Senate last year and not realize that that is more an exception to the rule than it is the rule itself. Most genocides aren't recognized. Mm-hmm. And as a result, if you can't even go to this to the length of identifying something as being genocide, how can you even hope to prevent it in the first place? So mm-hmm. when we look at it through the lens of the work that the ANCA is doing in some of our projects, we start with that focal point of recognition as a way of introducing new audiences to the issue of genocide. And, and we also look at it in a more granular way. So genocide isn't the killing of X amount of people by the state. It's a process through which a state will engage in some subtle forms of discrimination or segregation or whatever that might from the outside not really seem to be that uh, egregious or dangerous, but then can very quickly devolve into something that more resembles genocide. So it's also genocide prevention is about recognizing those early stages and finding a way of intervening at those early stages to prevent it from escalating into something mm. much worse. It seems inevitable. It seems out of our control. But at the end of the day, it's people making the choice to make this policy happen. And if there's enough awareness, it's, I feel like it's possible. I mean, w- when I say this, I'm not saying that recognition is like the, the, the cure-all for something like genocide. I mean, China's actually a good example and it, in a way might disprove what you said because mm-hmm. while it is preventable in theory and while it isn't inevitable in theory, when you have a state of the size and power of China engaged in a genocidal process, what could you hope to do to prevent them from doing that? And right. we can we can do everything we can to build awareness and raise awareness and encourage the US to impose sanctions. Mm-hmm. Where this country has been doing things along the lines of genocide for the pretty much since its inception. Right. Uh, you know, 60, 70 years to ago. Its people, to its own yeah. people, yeah. Um, to to political dissidents, right. to people who, who share different religious views, um, or don't adhere to the state's mantra. Like those are things that have been happening and we, we have to just be realistic as well in terms of what we're able to do. Which is why we've been unsuccessful with Turkey up to this point. They're just, I feel like they're 
too strategically strong and important to mm. be able to we're working on it yeah yeah definitely and, but we also have to recognize that a lot of the burden rests on powers like the united states and other western powers that are in a position to hold states accountable but choose not to because of those strategic interests right we repeatedly put uh, human rights on a pedestal uh, below things like geopolitics or economics and make our decisions always with those things in mind and then human rights becomes a convenient way of us to virtue signal to these states when they do things we don't like um but then we conveniently abrogate any sense of responsibility when our countries are also engaged in those processes of genocidal perpetration or denial themselves so it's a very complex issue well speaking about you know uh, countries that have committed genocide. I mean, you were mentioning the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about present-day uh, genocides and what's happening around the world now? So, based on some of the research we're doing, we've identified, I mean, to give you a snapshot, we're looking at about 60 countries based on some preliminary research that are either engaged in genocide denial, active genocide denial, and we define active denial as a country that is kind of actively promoting the erasure of the history of a people. So... If Turkey weren't committing genocide against Kurds and I could just anal- analyze the Armenian genocide in a vacuum, then I would say Turkey is the perfect example of active genocide denial. Then we also look at contemporary cases of genocidal perpetration, which means anything that doesn't necessarily have to be that mass scale slaughter of, of people. It can be the uh, imposition of specific legislation or discriminatory legislation that targets one or two groups in a society so it's not yet got to the point of violence but it's sowing the seeds for that violence so we include that in our assessments because that's part of the whole process of being able to identify those early stages right Mm -hmm. so 60 countries between those countries there are 80 cases of genocide which means some countries have doubled up (laughs) and then and then another thing we see is that um and this mostly accounts for the double ups is of the cases of genocide denial, 65% of the countries engaged in genocide denial are currently perpetrating some form of genocide today. Continuing. So, continuing it, yeah. Mm. So, so there's well, a pattern there. A, definitely a pattern, and that kind of assessment, preliminary assessment could be that genocide denial is a strong indication of whether or not a country is going to go on to commit another genocide. Mm. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. But in terms of the countries that are currently engaged in what we would like depict as genocide like that mass scale industrial level slaughter uh china is definitely right up there myanmar with the rohingya Mm -hmm. population i should mention with china it's not just the uh uyghurs uh there's a group called falun gong which are uh, a a kind of religious group um Mm -hmm. that that has defied the state for a while they operate a lot in the diaspora um they've been the subject of this whole organ harvesting scandal i'm not sure if you've heard of them you might have seen their their volunteers raising awareness of that so that's a whole other issue and Mm -hmm. it's almost tragic that now the attention is being drawn onto the Uyghurs finally uh, after years and years of this happening with no attention but at the same time it's almost overpowering people's understanding of like the Tibetans or the Mm -hmm. the fact that Hong Kong is very much related to that process of genocide that China's engaging in it's it's one and the same um it's just not racial so what we call that is politicide. And that's what we could characterize North Korea as a situation, for example. Cambodia. Cambodia as well during like that, that process, the, the Khmer Rouge. But uh, North Korea, contemporary politicide, anyone who right. is a dissident uh, is immediately subject to some form of like mass incarceration or persecution at genocidal levels. 
I have an interesting question. Mm. What about Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire, Soviet Union, these nations that no longer exist anymore? Are, is there any accountability with their successor states? Are you connecting those? Yeah, we, we are to an extent, um, but it's obviously within the realms of reason, and that's why we use the qualifier active genocide denial to explain those cases, because if we were to look at every historic case of genocide, it would unfortunately, we would never have the time to be able to put something like that together. You could trace things back. Right. Like, we include colonial-era genocides because... Uh, there are claimants, there are indigenous populations in Latin America, for example, that experience genocide and continue to experience genocide as a result of the, the lingering consequences of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the Spanish government, the Belgian government, the French government all try to excuse or downplay the severity of the crimes that took place. So we, we consider them as being genocide deniers um, themselves. Russia for, like, does have a number of cases, uh, definitely, but, you know, the, the Sakashian genocide, for example, mm -hmm. is one that we haven't looked at because, as far as I'm aware, there isn't a concerted state policy from Russia to deny what took place. Because, uh, and, and in, all, like, in all seriousness, the Russian Federation today is now two governments removed from the, the Russian Empire that uh, engaged in those crimes. So the government of Russia today has a policy of just let's ignore it and pretend it didn't happen without saying anything about it, which makes it hard for us to build a case for genocide denial when there literally is no evidence out there. So is there value in trying to achieve recognition from these countries that have also committed genocides in the past? Like, does it lower the legitimacy of uh, their support? You know, because Turkey will turn it on them, right? You've committed genocide. Why are mm. you, why are you uh, you know? It, I mean, there are, there are varying views on this. Yeah. Um, one, I think the most prominent ones would be Ilhan Omar choosing to vote present on House Resolution 296 last year, recognizing the Armenian genocide. And her justification for that was, well, we should focus on the indigenous genocide and the genocide that took place as a result of the enslavement of the African-American population before we start looking at overseas genocides. And there is value in that argument at a humanitarian level. I can understand that. But I don't believe these things are mutually exclusive. I don't think right. that you can say that I'm not going to recognize this genocide because we haven't recognized this genocide as if there's some kind of order of magnitude that you need to follow. If you're choosing not to recognize one uh, because uh, you haven't recognized, uh, recognized another, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of recognition. Yeah, it feels like whataboutism. It, exactly. But at the same time, there are some cases that we do need to be careful about, um, especially when denialism is particularly egregious. And I think some of the, some of the cases we look at, I mean... I don't know how familiar you are with the Croatia-Serbia case where there are both countries have, have some claim of genocide against the other. Both countries have had cases of genocide prosecuted against the other and both countries deny the genocides that their, their uh, forebears committed against each other dating back like well into the, like, the mid 20th century like during Nazi occupation and stuff. Yeah. How, how far do we go with this? Uh, do we go to states that are actively denying a genocide? Is the U.S. actively denying genocides that took place, or is it being euphemistic in its reference to those genocides? And, and these, are, these are silly questions, because ultimately, we shouldn't really care about the terminology and how we refer to these cases, you know? Right. Genocide is genocide because, you know, in the same way, murder is murder. Right. Just because you don't call it, you know, murder doesn't mean it's any less of a crime, but we've created specific crimes and codes in terms of prosecuting for a reason, because we see the 
the excesses of violence that take place and we see that it is a preventable process and we want to be able to address that in some form, you know? And at the end of the day, for me, as a citizen of this country, even if it's had a bloody past, I want my country to be better. I want this country to, rec- you know... Uh, yeah, yeah. And and what I'd hope is that if we're able to acknowledge crimes that have taken place internationally, maybe that then puts us in a better position to comment on the crimes that have taken place here. So let's not look at it as if there's a competition between cases of genocide mm-hmm. perpetration. Let's say we can learn from the experience of recognition and and how that has benefited the Armenian people today who are still suffering the consequences and ramifications of genocide. Um, and let's apply that lesson to our treatment of Native Americans and African Americans mm-hmm. or whatever country it is and hope that there's a lesson that could be learned from them. Right. Um, so, Alex, we've talked about a lot of genocides currently plaguing our world. Genocide prevention is clearly no small feat and it feels, it feels large. It feels impossible. Where do you start? How do you prioritize I mean, this is the the fundamental challenge, and I think it's why this project has been taking such a long time to come to fruition. It's been in the works for a while, but it's only now that we've been able to really find a way of doing it. And the way we've started has been to just start by identifying, like I said, recognition, identifying cases of genocide in the world today. Once we've done that process of assessing and identifying, we've put together detailed country profiles to uh, build awareness or to at least provide some kind of historical context and backing. So we want to provide these resources in terms of genocide reporting. But there are two other really important streams of how we're approaching it. The first is coalition building. And we believe that ultimately the only way you can build a solidarity movement is by actually engaging directly with other organizations and building tangible ties. So what we've been doing has been reaching out to community groups that represent Uh, communities that have suffered genocide or are currently working in the human rights space that are dealing with the consequences or ramifications of genocide. And we're partnering with them and asking them to support this initiative to provide us some backing and some credibility to be able to move forward and say, we have uh, the global center for the responsibility to protect or whoever uh, backing us and, and, and putting their name behind this initiative. Uh, Some organizations that have partnered with us have actually given us access to they're experts on the ground and, and have said, you know, we have people currently working in Sudan, South Sudan or the Central African Republic where genocides are taking place and they're providing some like resources in terms of a research and, and just expert opinions to help guide our research. And then with this coalition, it puts us in a position where we can approach politicians or uh, for our specific purposes, media outlets and say, we have 50, 60 organizations, community organizations, human rights groups, Uh, academic institutions saying that this is an issue that we need to address. How are you going to find a way to incorporate this into your reporting? So, uh, and we'll get into it more when we talk about the project itself, the Impact Media Institute, but it is a media focused institute. So when we're talking about prevention, the starting point for us is building public awareness through using our advocacy channels in the world of like media and communication to build capacity for them to report on genocide but also to encourage them to do their own reporting on these cases. Another aspect to this, I'm sorry, there's kind of a lot going on, but um, another aspect to this is, I guess the best term for it would be forecasting, but it's, it's not perfect. But what we want to be able to do is assess the likelihood of countries to actually go to the step of perpetrating genocide. So we're using a series of indexes and other resources 
mostly derived from UN literature because they've kind of been on the ground in these situations. And they have certain guidelines when it comes to reporting on potential atrocity crimes. And all we're doing is applying those guidelines to the countries we've identified as being uh, in the process of committing genocide. And from that, we're able to actually put a tangible number to the likelihood of a country to commit genocide and their ranking relative to other countries. And that's something that can at least help us in the process of simplifying genocide to the public, like making it more accessible to people, not having it look like this, uh, like I mentioned, this like this monstrous issue that we can't hope yeah. to resolve, but start to break it down and dissect it and say, this country's engaging in the process of discrimination or the organization of hate groups or the dehumanization of certain minority communities and then use the avenues that we can through the government or through media to shed a light on that and try to change those outcomes. Because it's easier, for example, to force a country to change discriminatory policies that are derived from racial distinctions than it is to tell a country to stop locking up Uyghurs in an internment camp. Like they're, they're, yeah. These are two very far like separated issues on the scale. So we've kind of established like a perpetration scale or score. Yeah, a scale or like a matrix or something. And, and, and that's... That's something that I think is key to us being able to deconstruct and dissect the issue of genocide and not... And I think a lot of the problem we've seen with other groups that have sought to uh, engage in the process of genocide prevention is that it can get very, for lack of a better term, academic. And that's not to speak down to anyone, but it's, it is a very complex subject area. And most of the people working in prevention are PhDs or doctorates who've dedicated decades of their life researching these issues but then how do you communicate this high level concept to the average american citizen or australian citizen or someone who actually has the power to change those who are in power or, or push decisions uh to to change these situations so that's something we need to consider as well our audience and that's where we differentiate ourselves from other groups especially if the issue relies on public pressure at some point exactly, along yeah. that plan Alex, could you give us a your official description of what IMI Impact Media Institute is, and is it just a website? You know, so it, it's it's a digital platform aimed at combating and confronting the normalization of genocide denial in the media, and that would probably be the like the the pitch right. to someone. So media is the focus, combating the normalization of denial. So when I say normalization, I mean this process we've seen where the media kind of inadvertently props up the narratives of dictatorial genocidal regimes. One example is the Washington Post has a very strange history when it comes to both the Armenian genocide and other genocides, not to single them out. Every publication has its issues. Um, but they, in the last, I think, month, probably beginning of July, put out an editorial policy that stated the Uyghur genocide is a genocide. And it's the first publication of that scale to identify it as a genocide and say we as an institution are going to be calling this a genocide from now on in our reporting. That's something that we had to do as an organization as the ANC like five years ago to push like the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the LA Times towards right. establishing those policies so we don't have the air quotes genocide kind of issue playing out. So that's one of the things we're seeing. I guess you could call that a positive, but at the same time, the Washington Post, I think it was a week later, published a full page ad from uh, a Turkish-American advocacy group that was effectively pushing propaganda for Erdogan on the anniversary of the coup attempt by saying that Erdogan was a guardian of democracy and that the Gulenists uh, were, were uh, 
destroying or they were traitors or they were they were enemies to democracy and that Erdogan is the only guy who can save us and save Turkey and, and make it a democratic state. Both parties are at fault, obviously, the Gulenists and the, the AKP. Mm-hmm. But in that situation, how can a publication of that stature like publish something like that like and not like take that. into consideration the, the context of genocide denial and perpetration Turkey's currently engaged in. So there are so many challenges. So does freedom of speech kind of play into this? I, I feel like this is where the media is kind of, oh, we're trying to be unbiased about mm. things, but I feel like there's got to be a line at which you can't cross when it comes to the genocide or yeah. dangerous issues. And when, when we when we present this, like we understand that when we make a demand, for example, to say we don't want to provide a platform for genocide denial in the media, it can be misconstrued as being, uh, or to be interpreted as, we don't support free speech because mm-hmm. we're asking you to censor opinions that we disagree with. The reality is that uh, fundamentally as an organization, we believe genocide to be a fact mm-hmm. and to be a criminal determination. It is a crime genocide. So if you were then trying to publish material that is denying historical facts and trying to downplay the severity of this crime, you're not contributing to an environment of free speech that's not the world in which you're operating in you're operating in the spread of misinformation and and untruths which can be dangerous which is dangerous and contributes to new genocides exactly and the denialism yeah mm-hmm. and journalistic standards for most publications make accommodations for that we're not going to publish factually incorrect content in newspapers and when that does happen there's usually a huge amount of uh, outcry as a result of it and I mean, just, just anecdotally, again, the Azerbaijani consul general here published an article in the LA Times, uh, Spanish edition, which was blatant lies about right. uh, what was taking place. It was so fundamentally inaccurate. You wonder how something like this could even be published in the first place because of how backwards it is. The way in which we responded as the ANC was to prepare a response that was then later placed in the LA Times, Spanish edition as a direct response to what he had written and that's something that we can look at in terms of combating genocide denial in the media if outlets are unwilling to engage in this process of choosing the information they put out there and being selective with the information remaining honest and and upholding the standards of journalistic integrity which they should if they for some reason choose not to do that we want the avenue to be able to express the other side of the story to, to level the playing field in a certain way in, in reference to media coverage, it seems like with COVID and quarantine, a lot of people are more tuned into social media and as a result, have more time to potentially educate themselves. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that has helped in terms of mobilizing movements such as BLM. How do you think that can potentially help or affect you know the genocide awareness? Yeah, I, I mean, social media has proven to be a really powerful tool even outside of the the context of the US, I think there have been many groups already engaging on the ground in a lot of this sort of activism. A little bit removed from genocide, but when you see the protests taking place in Russia against Putin or in Hong Kong or elsewhere in the world, they're using tools like Twitter or Telegram or whatever it might be they have at their disposal to organize these rallies and protests. The Velvet Revolution. The Velvet Revolution, yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, and, And to this day, you see Pashinyan using Facebook Live as a means of communicating with with his his audience and it's put a lot of stock in social media as a legitimate tool for social mobilization and as someone who's been trying to get a little bit more involved in that space i've seen how effective they can be as uh, as tools for developing solidarity movements whether it be black lives matter 
genocide is it's on it's it's hard and and there are a lot of complexities and nuances to it which make it difficult one example um and i'm talking about kind of solidarity networks and building here is um the uyghur genocide is one that we obviously believe is a genocide it's not disputed but i've had interactions with Uyghur rights activists who aren't willing to recognize the Armenian genocide. And the reason for that is Uyghur communities in China uh, receive a lot of financial support from Turkey. And there are a lot of Uyghur refugees in Turkey that have been assisted by... I actually faced the same issue when trying to build networks with Rohingya rights activists groups because Turkey was operating in Bangladeshi refugee camps where a lot of these Rohingya uh, refugees were, were living. So how can you deal with this where... You have people who you should be naturally building solidarity with, but are unable to because a denialist government is holding them back from being able to speak out about it. Social media actually becomes an interesting tool in navigating that bridge because we can now interact with these people directly without having to build these uh, strong institutional ties that might raise alarm uh, for the Turks or for, for you know us. But now we can build individual person-to-person links through social media channels and, and be just as effective in, in building that solidarity. So there's a, a lot of benefits and use to that too. Not that it's surprising necessarily, but the fact that the Turkish government has that kind of invisible hand in planting that seed of denialism, even in other communities that are mm-hmm. victims of genocide themselves, that's a weird full circle. Yeah. It Very is a trend eerie. I've been noticing though. I mean, they for Palestine, they support them. I mean, granted, it's usually yeah. Muslim communities, but... It's ironic that a Turkish government yeah. is uh, actively, uh, you know... At the uh, same time, it's very much consistent with their policy of denial. The reason Turkey continues to deny the Armenian Genocide, there are many reasons for it, but a, a lot of it has to do with prestige and their belief in this pan-Turkic, uh, neo-Ottoman right. world where they, they influence all the, the Muslim sphere. And that ties into the way in which they approach these cases. They want to be seen as the guardians of the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. So they go out in search of these communities to provide support to them, to build up their soft power and their capital in that space. The Armenian genocide is a necessary uh, collateral for them. Like they, they already don't care about us, yeah. but this becomes an easy way for them to just infiltrate those communities and spread their message. It's very scary. Yeah. How do you not get emotion like emotionally exhausted from researching all this? I, I'm sure it's, I'm do. sure that's it's, part it's, of it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I mean, I'm I'm really lucky to have a couple of fantastic interns working on this project now to help with the research, but there were times early on in this project where I think for a good 2 months my entire day in day out schedule with the ANC was sitting down and researching a country profile for genocide. And then immersing myself in that case of genocide and then trying to, you know, be able to go to sleep that night. Like, and, and, All right, it's time for lunch, guys. What yeah, are we exactly. having? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's a, it is very difficult, but ultimately, I mean, I mean, you, you're all in AYF. You, you know that this is a thankless job. It, it is emotionally yeah. exhausting. We also can't escape it. It's part of our... It's uh, our experience, you know, yeah. It's in our minds every and day, regardless if we're working out. And I hate to yeah. say it, but we do get desensitized to it to an extent when we're exposed to it on a daily basis. And I'm constantly checking myself and having to say, I mean, I'm coming from this... I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who is advocating for genocide recognition, but it's become so just like innocuous now mm-hmm. that i need to you know 
pull myself out and be more sensitive when I'm dealing with communities that are also experiencing it. But it's a delicate balance so as to, to keep going and continue moving the needle, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Kind of middle ground between those two things, yeah. We've talked about a lot of a lot of dark situations going on, <laughs> and it's important because awareness is very crucial. Can you tell us a success story of genocide prevention or recognition? Um, work that you've done, work that's been done somewhere else, or a case of a successful case of reparations that you you know know 20%. about. Yeah. So, <laughs> there are successful cases of genocide recognition i guess in a legal sense mm -hmm. uh the, the most important ones would be the criminal tribunal for yugoslavia uh former yugoslavia for rwanda uh mm -hmm. cambodia and these were all important because they also took place in the immediate aftermath of those crimes being being perpetrated and unlike us we can't try the perpetrators of the armenian genocide they're, they're long dead they um, were they were tried they were tried it was a sh it was a mock right. trial it, they, it wasn't they, serious they got their justice in the end. Yeah. But uh, when we, we talk about successful cases today, there have been a couple of successful prosecutions of genocide. Um, unfortunately, you can prosecute the genocide, but you can't prosecute the racism out of a community, to, to be blunt. Yeah. But the reality is that those grievances don't dissipate. In many ways, these legal cases actually enrage communities. And when, for example, the... the the most recent Yugoslav, because some of these proceedings are still taking place. Um, the Serbian public would see their war heroes, as they would call them, being prosecuted for genocide and will get up in arms about it. And it, it's in many ways consolidated a certain conservatism in Serbia that has led to the ongoing dispute over Kosovo and, and their issues with Albania. And there's still their issues with the EU and, and the issues with Croatia. So it's a success but it's a bittersweet. It's like a Pyrrhic victory kind of thing. Like, mm. what was the cost of that recognition taking mm. place? Rwanda, um, th there were successful prosecutions, but there is a major issue of genocide denial in Rwanda in terms of the genocide that the Tutsis perpetrated against the Hutus. And if you're familiar with the situation, the Hutus were the ones at the time in power and engaged in this kind of mass slaughter of the, the Tutsis. Um, and the Tutsis, when they were able to assemble and consolidate their, their military, came back in to capture the country and, and kick these Hutu nationalists out of power, ended up committing war crimes in the process. Mm -hmm. Those aren't recognized as genocide. Those are seen as being a necessary step to remove this fascistic, racist government. So another issue there, we, we have a justice process for the perpetrators or the instigators of that genocide, but no justice process for those people who fell victim to the victors of that mm. uh, that conflict. So I'm. It, it, it's also dark. Wouldn't you be able to tie in both communities so they got affected under the same umbrella of the genocide? I mean, but, but this is what I'm saying about you can you can't de-radicalize these communities that quickly. We're talking about the Rwandan genocide taking place in the 90s. The Yugoslav genocide is taking place in the 90s. There are people who were born like our generation in that era whose parents probably fought or were involved in the war in some capacity, and they've now been raised by people who suffered directly. How do you not have that uh, right. that that kind of ingrained sense of... Team mentality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look at us. I mean, look at Armenia and Turkey. It's three, four generations now, and it, yeah. it's just as bad or even worse.
Yeah, yeah, in a way, in a way. I mean, it's it's also like Azerbaijan's a good example because yeah. they have this like very concerted campaign of indoctrinating their population to hating Armenians. Right. I don't think Armenia has anything near that. I don't think that even exists. What in what ways if if any does the Impact Media Institute approach genocide prevention different than say UN orgs that work towards the same goal? I don't want to speak too disparagingly about the UN, but I also have very little faith in the UN as an organization. Mm -hmm. And and I think anyone who works in this space has a healthy degree of cynicism. Maybe that was a bit extreme, but mm -hmm. um, the current president of the General Assembly is uh, a Turkish uh, political, a, a Turkish politician, um, Volkan. I forget his name. Anyway, he used to be the. Turkey's um, minister for the EU when when that joke was still happening, like mm -hmm. when people thought Turkey might actually join, like right. hilarious. Um, he is also a vociferous denier of the Armenian genocide, and convenient. They're, they're yeah. Exactly, yeah. Who, who would have thought that uh, that a guy tied to the AKP, who I mean, one of the major factors in Turkey's inability to join the EU was they didn't recognize the genocide, and right. Cyprus and Greece and France, who were all kind of the vanguard of genocide recognition, called them out and refused to allow them to start the assess uh, the accession process so the fact that the guy who was the face of turkey's formal denial of the genocide in the eu is now the president of the Gem general assembly and that's a powerless position in many ways but it does set the agenda for the ways in which the un debates certain issues or special right. discussions and the general assembly does have a session dedicated to genocide the, the un has a whole kind of rapporteur or department dedicated to atrocity crimes and genocide. Which Armenia has a seat in. Which right. Armenia has a seat in. And Armenia has actually been incredibly active on that front. Right, passing um, resolutions every few years, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, well, Zorab Manatsakanyan, who's the current foreign minister of Armenia, used to be the permanent representative to the UN and had a very strong reputation as being like a, a an organizer and a, a mobilizer for kind of genocide awareness campaigns. So... I think that, that one way we want to differentiate ourselves is we believe the UN has a good framework of analysis for atrocity crimes. They have the expertise to be able to identify them. The problem is they're a, they're a toothless tiger. They, they don't no have leverage. the ability to There's act. There's no they binding it, it, exactly. ability, yeah. So it's basically countries can voluntarily choose to hold themselves to that standard. But if you're already perpetrating a genocide, mm -hmm. are you going to take a UN document and say, oh yeah, I definitely tick the box for... Uh, being actively racist against certain groups and like putting people in concentration. Obviously, you're not going to be agreeing to those things. So we want to take the model the UN has set out and then use our research to fill in the gaps that the UN is unable to fill mm. and provide that as a resource. And also, we're the first group to examine genocide denial in a very systematic way. Most groups look at genocide prevention as an issue separate from genocide denial. We're saying genocide denial in many ways is a cause of genocide mm. and that recognition is a, is a important aspect to overcome that. And then also we're the only group that I'm aware of that is doing this oriented towards the media where the media is the audience. Most res resources I've seen out there have been looking at academia or the genocide studies departments are, are almost like a, like, just something that happens now. Every university has some sort of like Holocaust and genocide studies. Yeah, schools. There, it's it's innocuous. It's it's not really. Uh, they're useful academic instruments, but those aren't advocacy tools. They breed advocates, but those institutions are responsible for preparing the resources that the advocates then use to apply into real world scenarios. So I think changing the audience and the focus to media. And holding the media accountable is very important. Most people consume...
their right. understanding of the world through the media, through television and newspapers. So if we can tap into that and have them be a little bit more conscious of the fact that genocides are happening and we need to recognize them, maybe we can shift public awareness. And it's like a multi-stage phased process. Get people to care, get people to care enough to tell their politicians to care, get the politicians to overcome whatever issues they face in terms of their like political party affiliations and whatever to actually vote on these issues, and then get the president to sign that into law and enforce sanctions. It sounds easy when you say it like that, but... <laughs> I think um, it's easy to be pessimistic about social media in general, especially with the spread of misinformation that can be mm. so... It's so easy to We're execute. Those Turkish side, yeah, right you know. now. Right. But at the same time, with that power comes the power to to put it to good use. Mm. And it's... I am eager and curious to see how social media will, will help in, in this pursuit Definitely, yeah, and it's a huge component of our strategy as well is to really, I mean, we want to be seen as a go-to resource for this kind of stuff, and the only way you can do that these days is getting a blue check mark. <laughs> well, I was going to say, let's bring it enough. full circle. You came back to Twitter like a few months ago, yeah. you know? I mean, <laughs> Welcome back. This I've heard like, of the comeback. <laughs> at yeah. uh, Algolitsky, uh, but I mean, this is the space for this kind of com- yeah. this kind of topics and conversations very politically uh motivated things i mean just this last week and i i mean i want to talk about it a little bit just because anc is kind of on the forefront of this but we have actively changed the narrative associated with the issue of artsakh and recognition and, and genocide on twitter in in like a course of a couple of months mm-hmm. to the point at which the azadi consul general is responding to our tweets like mm-hmm. me and like a few others or the Azeri consul general is tagging the ANCA western region in his tweets <laughs> he's not tagging the Armenian embassy or the consulate he's tagging us mm-hmm. so I gotta ask how does that feel it like- is the most amazing feel I, I was in a, a call this morning uh for work and I was explaining it to someone and I said mm-hmm. there is I the only thing that helps me sleep at night now given everything that's happening in the world to our people is knowing that Nasimi Akhaev, the consul general of Azerbaijan, is haunted by me in his in his dreams because of my Hell tweets. Yeah. Like he's think he's thinking about us when he goes to sleep, and and it pains him. What more could you want? Exactly. I, I mean, actually, what more could I want? I'd like to be blocked by Aliyev on Twitter. But <laughs> You're not there yet. Huh? We're, getting, there yet, we're working yeah, yeah. our way there. <laughs> I'm sure one by one, one tweet at a time. Exactly, exactly. But it is such a powerful tool, and I, I totally underestimated it. I was never really involved before, and. I found uh, something else that's interesting. Um, there's a community of Armenians out there who aren't organizationally affiliated, mm-hmm. who are now consuming the content that our organization is putting out because instead of having it be the ANCA that's talking about it, it's Alex Galitsky or Haig Minasyan or Gaviskajian or whoever it is who, who make it a little bit more palatable because you can place a face to it. Then they read our content and then they retweet it and then they start thinking that way. And then it's like this process through which we're able to share a message that comes very intuitively to us, but to other elements of our community don't necessarily understand or, or don't have the same degree of understanding as we do. But I always felt like those people that were not affiliated with the political parties or the movements, I still knew deep down they agreed with everything we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. About. I mean, uh, I, not to get too thing of like political about it, but after... Uh, Nasimi, the Consul General, started talking about the ARF and the Dashnags and the AYF. I'm seeing people on Twitter saying, wow, who are these ARF guys? Like, <laughs> if the Azeris hate them so much, maybe I want to join. And it, it's so funny. Like, And then I'll talk to people who will say, oh, I had a bad experience with the organization or I, I, I have my political differences. And then you put like a young progressive 
like borderline socialist guy who represents the organization in front of them and say, hey, actually, I agree with everything you say about race and gender and the improvements that we need to make in Armenia and how like we should be building unconditional solidarity networks with communities in the US. And suddenly it goes from being this like big bad wolf to being a very relatable thing where you can you can understand that there is a diversity of views in this organization right. uh, that that people might not necessarily expect. And the only solution is join and find out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, do you feel like there's been a, a recent awakening kind of connecting back to what Christo was saying about uh, maybe because it's quarantine and everyone's on social media now, uh, you know, uh, pages like Sartonk Media that's making this information way mm. more available and easy to share. I feel like there's a lot more people that are aware and actively advocating for Artsakh and Armenia and the genocide and Armenian issues now. I mean, I've been very happy uh, seeing the rest of the community. You know, in AYF, we've been doing this consistently for since we've been joining. Mm -hmm. and uh, But now I'm seeing everyone getting into it, and it makes me really happy, hopeful, you know. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th there, there are positives and negatives to it. I feel like I'm the bearer of bad news. I'm always like, this is good, but... <laughs> it's okay, you have an <laughs> <But> accent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Zartonk is great, and all the other like New Age media, I mean, like the Armenia Report, and, right. and even just individuals who are providing commentary and, and analysis is really important too, and you'll see these sorts of influences out there. At the same time, we need to be better than being mobilized during crisis. We, as representatives of our organizations talk about these things every day of the year but most of the community and i don't want to go into like the whole you're an armenian for april 24 thing no you're armenian 365 days of the year but your community activism might be confined to a few key days and that doesn't make you less of an armenian that doesn't disparage you in any way but it's a reality of our community in terms of the activism and the the environment that we're faced with is that most people don't rally until there is a crisis. Yeah. What we're trying to do is prevent those crises from happening in the first place by pushing government policy or public awareness to, to you know, stop it in its tracks. So while it's great that we're seeing all of this attention and mobilization in the, uh, the Twitter sphere in response to what's happening, it would have been great if people were talking about like the problems existing in our communities in the, in like Before the Middle happened. East Before ages yeah. ago. Yeah. Like, there was a flare-up of, like, the, the whole, um, the anti-Armenian protests in Lebanon, mm -hmm. like, two months ago, right? That made the rounds. It, it did well. But, you know, that's not something that comes out of nowhere. Erdogan doesn't just one day infiltrate Lebanese society and convince a bun bunch of Sunni nationalists to hate Armenians. Where, where were we, like, for the last two decades, Erdogan's been in power in Turkey, slowly cultivating that kind of hatred. So we need to start moving towards being... Less proactive. reactive and more proactive in yeah. the way we deal with these situations. Exactly. And, and um, but also encourage like diversity of thought on these issues too. Like there are a lot of opinions out there, a lot of perspectives out there that we should empower and, and uh, also empower the voices on the ground in these communities. Because like, like I was mentioning earlier with my conversation with um, a friend in Lebanon, um, like I, I knew from the, st the statistics that there were 150,000 Armenians in Lebanon. Turns out there are probably less than 60,000. That's something I'll never know being a diasporan from Australia uh, to the US, but someone who's lived in Armenia and Lebanon who has that experience will. So at the same time, our the coverage we're seeing and the attention we're seeing dedicated to this issue is very Western diaspora centric. It's still very much the perspective of the US or like the Amerigai like yeah. uh, community and we still need to see that kind of 
awakening take place in our other communities, uh, it's a lot diff more difficult for them because they face more restrictions and, and like oppressive factors. Like we have probably 200,000 Armenians in Iran, give or take. They, they can't access Twitter. What are they going to do? How are they going to express yeah. themselves? How do we take into consideration their interests when we talk about these issues? Because we always have to bear in mind how our actions affect our communities internationally. So. And because we are everywhere, the Armenian cause yeah. is nuanced wherever you are. Yeah, exa right. exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing big Armenophobia, not just in Azerbaijan, but in Turkey as well. But mm. what can we do for that community there? You know, yeah. uh, it, it'll only endanger them more to speak out against, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, it, there, there's a, and it's it's like the perennial frustration of ours is how, how do we go through that process? And anecdotally, again, kind of separate to this issue, but related, uh, a friend of mine at Amnesty International, I uh, was in discussion with him about joining this initiative, this IMI initiative, and seeing if Amnesty would be prepared to take a stake on it. And he, he had said that the, the difficulty that Amnesty would have in signing off on like a coalition statement about genocide is that they have people working in countries that are currently perpetrating mm -hmm. genocide. Amnesty's never taken a position on genocide. Actually, I found out that uh, they haven't declared anything a genocide other than the Holocaust and maybe Rwanda. But ongoing genocides, they don't call it a genocide. They just report. They report on the atrocities taking place, but they don't label it something because they want to stick to it as a purely legal criminal definition. But also they have people working in Turkey that they need to protect. And if they yeah. start speaking out, they're the first ones going to be targeted. In fact, mm -hmm. Amnesty uh, volunteers and researchers have already been imprisoned in Turkey, uh, currently oh. imprisoned in Turkey. And we lose our eyewitnesses that way, the yeah. people that are actually trying to record this. Uh, so we need to be smart. We need to be strategic. 100%. It's not so simple. At the same time, it's given us a lot of content to discuss when it comes to how what Azerbaijan is doing today uh, in, in regards to Armenia and the provocation of aggression against Armenians across the world is very much a continuation of the process of genocide and, and something that we need to call out as such as well and and build that into the consciousness of our people too. It wasn't just 1915, it's 1915 to the present day. Yeah. And that only confirms the importance of the work you're doing. Um, Alex, thank you so much no, for, an absolute pleasure. for coming so and, and chatting with us. Last question for you here is what can we do and what can listeners do to help moving forward? Um, I mean, the best thing to do would be to just be involved in whatever way you can, whether that be on social media, whether that be contacting the ANCA if you're interested in volunteer opportunities. I mean, with when it comes to the Impact Media Institute, we could never have enough people helping out in terms of contributing resources or keeping an eye on the media and just keeping us informed if they see things that they think we might be interested in reporting just to bring it to our attention. So I'd love to keep this as kind of crowdsourced and open as possible to give people the opportunities to contribute. Um, the ANCA has a fantastic internship program We've currently had the largest group of interns we've had ever with 13, uh, all by Zoom, given the current COVID environment. And I think we're going to be opening up our next round of intern applications uh, within the couple, next couple of weeks. And it's a fantastic opportunity. People will be assigned to work on IMI, but there are a couple of other uh, areas with our other staff members where they'll be working on combating anti-Armenianism or encouraging civic participation in uh, the United States to elevate and empower the Armenian voice. So... Really, any way to get involved in the community organizations is, is the best way to, to keep up this work and to help empower our collective cause. Our conversation with Alex took place back in August, and yet a lot of it remains not only relevant, but especially accurate. We brought him back into the studio to talk about the role of genocide prevention in Artsakh.
So since we last spoke, Alex, a lot has changed. We wanted to chat about the role of genocide prevention in relation specifically to Artsakh. In what ways is the struggle for Artsakh linked to genocide? I think it's impossible to view what's happened in Artsakh over the course of the last two months outside of the framework of genocide. I think everything from the underlying motivations of the Azerbaijani government to the practice of conflict and warfare that we've seen the Azerbaijani government engage in over the course of the last two months is very indicative of some of these early stages of genocide that we spoke about last time. Uh, everything from the way in which the Armenian community and the Armenian people have been dehumanized by the government to the indiscriminate nature of attacks on civilian populations to the attacks on cultural sites and cultural heritage, as well as the rhetoric and the narrative we've seen from the Azerbaijani side, which is effectively gearing towards the eradication or extermination of the Armenian people from their native lands. I think it's impossible to see this as anything but a continuation of the Armenian genocide. Ideologically speaking, it's very much a continuation of the underlying foundation or ideology of pan-Turkism that we saw that informed the genocide 105 years ago. And in a kind of almost cyclical or a, a moment of historical deja vu, the way in which Turkey and Azerbaijan have collaborated in an unprecedented way when we look back at, say, the last 30 years of this conflict is very much indicative of this overarching narrative or this overarching ideology of genocidal conflict and warfare against the Armenian people to fulfill a very specific uh, ambition of pan-Turkism that is held by both the Azerbaijani and Turkish governments. So when we look at what's been happening, I think we've been characterizing this as a genocidal conflict, as genocidal aggression. In terms of trying to, I guess, express to the international community and other stakeholders that what is taking place is very much an existential threat for the Armenian people. It risks the eradication of Armenian culture, Armenian heritage, and also the physical destruction of the Armenian people in their indigenous lands. So we can't see this as anything but a genocidal process. Uh, and the prevention of conflict, the prevention of the continuation of this violence needs to be seen and needs to invest or see the investment of international partners in order to prevent that outcome being genocide. I feel like this could have been prevented if the genocide was recognized 100 years ago, mm -hmm. justice was served, and both these communities were aware of the history. And this is a direct result of denial and not preventing uh, the future calamities as a result. Well, definitely, because genocide recognition is about holding accountable those forces that perpetrated that crime, the forces that perpetuated that crime through denial, but also it's about destroying that underlying ideology that resulted in the genocide taking place. And the failure of Turkish governments, past and present, as well as the institutions of the Turkish state to really instill a narrative in the Turkish nation that didn't result in the dehumanization of Armenians or didn't result in the uh, the, the total disenfranchisement of minority communities in Turkey has prepared populations, both in Turkey and in Azerbaijan, for this violence to, to, to take place without any sort of consequence. So we even started to see 
in the discourse within Azerbaijan, even amongst the sort of reformist figures who are anti-Aliyev, anti-government, pro-democracy, still justify and legitimize the war and the conflict because it fit within their nationalist understanding of the us versus them, the othering, the dehumanization of Armenians. So that's a very concerning thing to see as well when even the more liberal elements of your society are advocating or supporting conflict that is genocidal in nature. So Alex, we uh, spoke earlier on uh, before about the Impact Media Institute that you guys are working on. Uh, however, in these circumstances, can you talk about the impact of media coverage in Artsakh? So, fundamental to the objectives and goals of the Impact Media Institute are understanding that the media has a responsibility and a role to play in its coverage of issues in order to raise awareness and shed a light on injustice in the world. Unfortunately, over the course of the last two months of this genocidal aggression, we haven't seen the media take any real serious and substantive efforts to identify what is taking place as genocidal or as a continuation of the genocide, or to even uh, try to grapple with the asymmetric nature of the conflict as it unfolded. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that within the early days of the fighting, there were arguments as to whether or not Armenia may have started this conflict is very indicative and representative of that failure within the media to reconcile with that responsibility it has because if if anyone were to look at this from an outside perspective without knowing any of the history or background it should be obvious mathematically yeah. how could a nation of three million people or why would a nation of three million people want to instigate conflict with a nation of 90 million people combined obviously now that we saw that the Armenian military was not up for the task of fighting against 21st century you know technology you know that obviously adds to the fact that there was no chance that they would have instigated this you know, fight. But even still, we're seeing articles that with these false equivalencies, right. even after the fact, which is just frustrating. Well, the, the false equivalency aspect is, is very concerning because I think there's this perception within media that there is a need to strive for a journalistic neutrality and, and a sort of maintain this idea of journalistic integrity, which I think at its most reductionist form sees the need to balance one perspective from, say, the victim group with the perspective of the oppressor group in order to come to some kind of middle ground understanding where you have us, um, I guess, in a in an ideal world, some kind of nuanced, morally righteous position that can account for the grievances and expectations of both sides. In reality, that's not what it looks like because the false equivalency effectively legitimizes the perspective of the oppressor and also equates that and the veracity of that with that of the group that is experiencing violence and persecution. Now, how can Armenia acting out of self-defense in response to aggression by Azerbaijan be seen as equal to the aggression instigated by Azerbaijan? That's not something that we can, we should be even entertaining that notion. And I think there's a, another parallel narrative that's emerging now, which is that somehow what's happened today with Azerbaijan occupying indigenous Armenian lands and displacing over 100,000 Armenians is some kind of reversal of the situation that took place in the 1990s war, where Armenians were able to liberate their ancestral lands and it resulted in the displacement of Azeris from that territory. Now, when you frame 
a, a concept in that way, like this is a reversal or this is the the opposite of that situation. You're almost saying that some kind of order or justice has been restored in in allowing that reversal to take place, which is not the case. Uh, it, it's also highly reductionist because it doesn't take into account the fact that the initial conflict in the, the 90s was instigated by Azerbaijan and was intended to eradicate Armenia's presence from the region. So it, it, it's, I think part of it is ignorance, part of it is just a lack of awareness and understanding and that media is frankly ill-equipped to handle these issues. When you look at other international conflicts like Israel-Palestine or some of the other more prominent conflicts like Syria, there are people who have been embedded in those situations for years. They've been able to be there as reporters or lean on local resources and understanding. And in unfortunately for our case, Armenia has never been this focal point of the world's attention. It's always been dismissed as this irrelevant region of the world in Russia's backyard and therefore has no purchase when it comes to international geopolitics, which happens to be the language in the, of, of the way in which the world operates. There are geopolitical interests in Syria. There are geopolitical interests in Iraq or Palestine and, and uh, Israel. But in Armenia, there's never been that perception. I think, if anything, the agreement that has kind of unfolded in this last week or so has demonstrated there is a lot of geopolitical weight in this region. And unfortunately, that understanding has come a little bit too late. But it's come as a result of Russia asserting its dominance in the region, as a result of Turkey imposing itself in the region and expanding and, and really fulfilling a large part of its neo-Ottoman aspirations in, in developing this pan-Turkic bridge between Turkey, Nakhchivan, and, and Baku and Azerbaijan. And, and of course, then the implications for Iran and what it means for bringing Turkey and Russia closer to Iran, but perhaps even Turkey and Russia closer to a great power conflict or rivalry or an extension of that rivalry with each other. Now, I think for us as as Americans or as Armenian Americans, that should be of great concern. I think that the United States definitely has no interest in seeing an expanded role for Russia in the region or an expanded role for Turkey in the region or to see those two powers come closer to Iran. And that needs to be part of the conversation as well when we start to look at what the US's role should be in this. But the international media has kind of neglected this issue because it, it has been seen as irrelevant or not newsworthy. And the cost of that has been uh, a lack of serious attention uh, or thoughtful attention to covering this issue. That's not to say that all media coverage has been bad. The ones that have rested more heavily on local perspectives and those who really embedded themselves in Artsakh and spent a good amount of time there uh, were able to see that. And I think those who have been covering this issue for a while as well have been able to pass through the the propaganda coming out of the Azerbaijani side and, and really look through, kind of see through that narrative that the government has been pushing. But for the most part, I think there's been a huge failure when it comes to major newspapers and publications of record in the United States. And as a result, I feel like it, it, it enabled the attack on Armenia this time around, these years of trying to be neutral. So. Well, yeah, and, and I think just very quickly that the whole issue of COVID, the issue of the electoral cycle and these distractions mm -hmm. had definitely captivated the attention of media, both domestically and internationally. And that was something that Azerbaijan and Turkey banked on when they made the decision to engage in this act of aggression. They knew there were going to be these distractions that would draw the world's attention away from this issue and the media's attention away from this issue. And that was our experience as well with our engagement with the media was, frankly, we were competing 
in a very saturated media market for a couple of minutes of time in one of the most intensive media cycles we've seen, one of the most crucial elections in US history at a time when the world is facing an unprecedented pandemic. So yeah. it was very hard to find space for this. That being said, it's no excuse. There is no excuse for allowing this to take place without the, the international community being aware. And the media has that responsibility and that role in shaping public understanding nar and narratives of this within the American community, but also government narratives. I mean, in, in large part, we know that this administration and, and, you know, past administrations too, are very receptive to what takes place in the media and the way in which these issues are reported. So when that is the main source of information driving decision-making to, to a degree, that's something concerning as well, because it means the information that is being received is not entirely accurate or not entirely representative or true to what's occurring or taking place on the ground. Right. It's all connected. And, um, it's easy to feel cynical as an Armenian right now, but I think um, the role of the media remains vital and the, the work of the Impact Media Institute is a testament to that. So we have a lot of work to do as a community and um, this is just only the start. We spoke a little bit about the role of recognition in genocide prevention. Can you speak a little bit about the role of recognizing Artsakh in preventing a genocide there? I think we need to see recognition as a crucial part of preserving the integrity and ensuring the survival of Artsakh uh, and the people of Artsakh. And it's it's not a new concept. I think there, there might be a perception that recognition of Artsakh would be this groundbreaking step that would take or require international powers to to really innovate or take some kind of phenomenal leap beyond what has ever been done before in the international space. That's right. not true. Um, there is a concept within international law called remedial secession, which is that a people or an, a sub-nation or a sub-national group have a right to self-determination when the government, which is meant to administer and, and manage them, fundamentally fails in its duty and responsibility to govern for all people, especially when they govern in a, in a racist or discriminatory way against a particular nation or uh, ethnic identity. And that's exactly what we've seen in the case of Azerbaijan. And it's demonstrated lack of will or intent or desire to protect Armenians and protect their cultural heritage. So putting aside the fact that Artsakh declared independence through a very legitimate means and fulfills every parameter to be an independent state that is outlined under international law, if we were to just look at this situation in isolation, in a vacuum, Artsakh has a right to self-determination because Azerbaijan has no intent of governing and protecting the rights of Artsakh's people, its, its civilians. So there is a precedent for this in the recognition of Kosovo's independence, which happened in 2008. It's a very recent example. And now we have over 50% of UN member states that have recognized Kosovo's independence. And that came as a result of the international community having identified during the war in the 90s where Serbia was perpetrating violence, uh, hate-fueled uh, hate crimes, war crimes, human rights abuses against the Albanians of Kosovo and determined that the only viable solution for this crisis was the recognition of the Albanian Kosovo's right to self-determination and independence what was the what was the final straw there what was the breaking point it, it really was the fact that 
there were these mass atrocities being committed. And then ultimately NATO's intervention in the crisis, which resulted in a permanent or a semi-permanent UN presence in the country for about 10 years. And during that period of UN administration, Kosovo was able to develop institutions of democracy and, and various other government functions that allowed it to be a viable state. And that ultimately resulted in independence in 2008 through a unilateral declaration of independence by Kosovo. When countries like the United States recognized Kosovo, they identified a couple of very important criteria or a high threshold of which Kosovo had met so as to uh, allow it to enter the community of nations. And amongst those were the fact that uh, Kosovo had been subject to violent human rights abuses by Serbia, that the uh, Yugoslavian state that Kosovo sought to uh, secede from no longer existed and had dissolved, and also the perception that recognition of the independence of Kosovo was the only way in which further bloodshed could be prevented. So it was seen as a viable resolution to uh, a, a deep grievance that had resulted in one of the uh, most devastating conflicts that Europe had seen in a very long time, probably since the uh, Second World War. So applying that to the case of Artsakh, all of those criteria are met. And I think today, more so now that we've seen the extent to which Azerbaijan is willing to go to inflict violence and uh, discrimination, hate crimes, war crimes against the Armenian people, we need to view recognition of Artsakh as the only viable way of preventing further atrocities from being committed, whether that be physical violence against the Armenians in their ancestral lands, but also the risk of cultural genocide that follows what we're kind of looking at now in terms of Azerbaijan's occupation of Armenian ancestral territory. So recognition is not just a, a an affirmant, uh, like an affirmation of the right that these people have to self-determine, which is inherent and that exists uh, under the UN Charter, but also is inherent to any indigenous community in their indigenous lands, but also recognition as a preventative step to take in order to ensure that future violence is not able to be perpetrated along the lines of ethnicity and race that would result in genocide. Got it. That's amazing. So for anyone listening, you know where to contribute, you know where to go. Thank you again, Alex. Thank you so much. For coming in. It's a real pleasure. Thank I'm you. glad you're here. You're an invaluable asset to the community. <laughs> Welcome to America, my friend. <laughs> Crazy time to it's be great here. to be here. Definitely. You have been listening to High Tuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And we're just a couple of Armenians. Talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Go ahead. Try to destroy them.